not not just you know evaluating people that sounds pretty negative but um just kind of how do you look at non-intuitive things i think a lot of times people focus a lot on the school people went to or whether they worked at google or not and, and those you know are maybe predictive or important but i like to kind of understand people based on their core traits versus um you know just kind of tags on their resume and so i think a few things that i look for is this founder market fit i think you know brax is a great example Welcome to Worth, a podcast where my brother Ethan and I highlight the unique stories of young people in the tech world. We'll talk with them about their backgrounds, current work, books that have profoundly affected their lives, and a lot more to understand how they think and the impact they want to make. This is the podcast that we wanted to listen to, but it didn't exist, so we made it ourselves. Think Humans of New York, but for young people shaping the tech ecosystem. To check out episode transcripts and join our mailing list, please visit worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. We'll link in the show notes. Let's begin. In this episode, I'm joined by Jess Lee, 23-year-old VC at Soma Capital and former partner at Rough Draft Ventures. We talked through Jess's decision to not return to Morgan Stanley after her junior summer, her experience working for multiple Y Combinator-backed startups, and how she thinks about career development. Hope you enjoy. Jessica, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really excited to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So you have a pretty extraordinary set of experiences to your name for someone who has just only graduated from college this past year. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your childhood? Yeah, totally. So I'll start with childhood. I was born actually in Indiana, um, nearby Purdue. Both my parents were graduate students doing their PhDs in electrical engineering there. Um, And they unfortunately weren't able to raise me due to financial constraints. So I actually went to China at a very young age, like six or seven months. um, So definitely still an infant. And Grew up there with my grandparents, um, aunts and uncles and cousins, so pretty big extended family from um, different parts of China, my dad's side as well as my mom's side. And then once my parents were in a better place financially and had moved um, to New Jersey where they still live, I went to join them in early elementary school and stayed in the U.S., um, specifically in New Jersey, since then, um, up until, of course, college. So for college, I went to Harvard and I studied applied math with a focus on economics and computer science. I just graduated earlier this year from Harvard in May of 2019. Um, And throughout college, I was pretty involved with a few different things. I guess my own personal background, even starting as early as late middle school and high school was in public markets investing, and that was my first exposure to what I'd say later became um, my current focus and probably my my long-time professional focus. I really enjoyed the process of analyzing and understanding companies, industries, and triangulating between different data sources, um, both qualitative and quantitative, um, but then wanted to work more closely with these companies, which I obviously couldn't do in the public markets, and so felt like investment banking would be a good way to do that and so did my last summer that summer 2018 in investment banking at Morgan Stanley and their tech coverage group and had a positive experience um, great learning experience but felt that ultimately 
the focus there was too short term and too transactional, at least for my taste. And so wanted to do something that would blend what I liked about banking, which is working closely with companies, and what I liked about public markets, which is analyzing and understanding companies in a long-term, more intellectually honest way. And so found myself in venture, especially towards the latter half of college, working with different funds, including General Catalyst, through Rough Draft, um, Global Founders Capital, Romulus Capital, and Female Founders Fund. Um, and then after school, joined Soma Capital earlier this year in August, um, actually as their first full-time hire. I'm working on all sorts of things. Um, and Soma that we'll talk a little bit about later is a seed stage sector agnostic, geography agnostic fund focused on Y Combinator companies. Very cool. So you did touch on this a little bit, but I'd like to begin with some of the operating roles you've held at startups. So you have experience working for Alpha and Allo, part of Y Combinator's spring and winter 2019 batches respectively, as well as Lux, which was actually acquired by Volvo, the car manufacturer in 2017. So beginning with Lux, the product that the team was working to build was essentially an app that allowed you to order an on-demand valet to meet you wherever you are and park your car for you. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So what was your experience like working with the founders, Curtis and Craig over at Lux and what did your day-to-day -day look like in that role? Yeah, totally. So this is my freshman year of college actually. So I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts at Harvard. So I was actually working more so day-to-day um, -day with the Boston team um, and the founders were based in SF um, and the headquarters were there as well. Um, so Boston was kind of a newer branch, a more experimental branch for them. And it was a pretty small team um, when I joined, obviously um, not full-time since I was a full-time student, but um, there were just three full-time people and one other intern. So we were in this pretty small space in downtown Boston. Um, and the reason why I took on the role, first of all, um, was because I had gotten all this advice from my dad and from other older people with more industry experience that working at a startup in whatever way was a really great training ground because you're able to wear all kinds of hats um, and be able to learn more skills than you would at a large company where you might probably be pigeonholed in a particular role. And so I definitely felt that way um, working at Lux in the early days, especially in this early branch um, within this already pretty early stage company. Um, and so basically I focused most on the operations and I think what I um, did mostly and what I liked about it was just how in the weeds, I guess you could say, I was able to get in terms of the business operations. So it wasn't just super high level, like, you know, siloed in this room, making a pitch deck or something like that. It was super on the ground. I would be interviewing potential valets. I would be going to the garages if there were any issues. I would be monitoring. There's this bird map sort of software, bird's eye view software that we would use to understand kind of the flows around the cities where there were problems and your valet looked like they were lost or taking too long. Um, then we would check in on those and we would also do inventory counts to make sure we had the proper jackets and scooters and things like that for valets. And so obviously it wasn't, you know, super sexy, if you will, work of like strategy or whatever people kind of like to talk about, but I think it gave me a really good taste of what actually building a company in the early days in these small team settings and really ironing out core processes that will no doubt change but be really instrumental to the foundation of a particular sector um, of the business in this case Boston um, so really enjoyed that experience and learned a ton from um, everyone involved 
So Lux is obviously a startup that you worked with back in 2015, uh, moving us into a startup that you're actually still currently working for. Uh, I do want to talk a bit about your work for Alpha. So for our listeners who do not know, can you talk a little bit about what Alpha does and what specifically you do for them right now? Yeah, totally. So Alpha is a super exciting platform. As you mentioned, they were part of the most recent Y Combinator batch. And actually, they started internally um, in Y Combinator as the YC women's community, I think, for founders and YC internal team members, maybe some investor friends. Um, But they actually spun out of YC earlier this year. um, So January of 2019, which is pretty recently, but they've grown incredibly. Um, So it's kind of starting from the ground up. In January, they've onboarded over 18,000 active members. Um, And basically the way I'd like to describe it, and as we were talking about um, earlier before recording, it is very much like a Reddit um, for women in venture tech and startups. Um, But of course, unlike Reddit, where there can be both helpful as well as some strange things, what's nice about Alpha is that it's a curated community, not so much in the sense of being selective or elite or exclusive, but rather everybody in order to post anything, you do have to have an account um, on Alpha and accounts aren't, you know, just randomly made. You do have to be vetted um, by some standard uh, just basically to make sure you're a genuine woman inventor of startups or tech and have good intentions when joining the platform. But once you're on the platform, you can post, um, you know, kind of anything within reason. Um, and you can also post anonymously since we understand that lots of people might have more sensitive topics that they want to discuss or even um, you know, have to share some details about their situation that would make them identifiable. And so we do respect people's privacy. And once they're on the platform, they're able to post about really anything that's on their mind. And what's been really great about the platform, and I've seen it definitely firsthand, is how transparent and supportive it is. So obviously there's lots of talk on LinkedIn and on Facebook and things like that, but you know, all of these conversations are really polished, if you will, and and you know, not super transparent and does, don't really touch upon um, the taboo issues that are so super important. And so people on Alpha are able to talk about things like their fear of being fired, um, or they just got fired, or they aren't able to launch their startup and they're going to have to shut it down or they're facing sexual harassment at work or they're not able to pay their bills um, because they moved to a new city like SF that's very expensive and are working as a founder or, you know, taking a lower salary as an early stage startup employee. And so basically people are able to really speak their mind and really get to the heart of issues very efficiently, um, but not only just air these grievances or questions, but still receive super actionable, um, super relevant, super supportive, comforting feedback from all members on the platform. So it's a really great community with um, a range of ages of women in all of these relevant industries all around the world. Um, and so really love it. And in terms of my current roles, so I work with them as head of content. Um, and that basically means that I run all of the featured posts. So if you're on Alpha and you go to the hashtag spotlight, that's where all our featured posts live. And basically I interview um, some people usually busier and more high profile women, and then also help um, all other women who are interested in writing a featured post, um, edit their post, um, bring them in and um, share them on the site as well as through our social networks. So you touched on how important it is for not just women, but women in tech in particular, to have a candid place where they can talk about different issues uh, in the workplace. 
who do you kind of see? And this is not to say that there is, you know, a one size fits all or a prototypical user for the platform, but who do you see as kind of the type of user that Alpha can really help out that this community is really built for? Yeah, definitely. So this is a little bit of a biased um, view since I'm kind of on this side of things. But I think since starting venture, what I've realized and, and startups as well, though I haven't worked full time at a startup, so can't speak as much on that front. But I, I think venture and, and perhaps startups, too, is a very isolating industry. It's kind of strange because um, you think of a typical schedule of a VC and they're constantly running around to events and coffee meetings and they have all these 30, 45 minute meetings scheduled throughout their day really back to back so you feel like it's a super social and you know really rich community and you also think about how small and connected the VC world is which is all very true but I think what ends up happening is that all these 30 45 minute conversations coffee meetings um, even the events happy hours things like that are super superficial in that um, you know you kind of go through typical conversation points like sharing deal flow um, and um, you know kind of making introductions and giving your elevator pitch and this and that, um, but you never really kind of build those strong relationships built on uh, kind of a true understanding of each other, both, you know, the win the congratulations stuff as well as um, the more difficult challenges. And so I think what's really great about Alpha is that it kind of brings this virtual community um, with certain in-person components. You can certainly meet up with people um, in local areas, um, but kind of brings this virtual community that talks about real issues to people who might not have the types of you know working spaces or companies or work cultures environments to do so and I'd say that's particularly at least in my experience and obviously bias since I am in VC um, particularly true about VC but I think of startups as well you think of founders and they're usually um, either a sole founder or co-founder but they're very lonely doing their own thing you know working maybe from home by themselves without kind of this huge team culture to be able to share um, and, and form friendships with yeah and those kinds of deep bonds and relationships I think are just really valuable not just in tech but really for any industry that you work in um, and I do think that Jess is downplaying it a bit in terms of some of the folks on the platform, but are there any users in particular that you're just so proud to have using uh, and giving advice to young people on the site? I know you guys do have a lot of really impressive and accomplished women using the platform already. Yeah, definitely. So lots of exciting people. Um, we have the CEO and founder of The Wing, for example, um, and then we also have have had um, Eileen from Cowboy Ventures, founder of Cowboy Ventures, come and do um, an AMA, which is super exciting. Um, and then we've also had the founders of Birchbox um, do an AMA as well. And then um, I've also interviewed Larissa, who's the first employee of Brax, which is very exciting. And then I also recently interviewed Yusra Mardini, who um, is actually um, a UN Goodwill ambassador. And she, her story is pretty famous. Um, basically, she escapes Syria um, on a dinghy with lots of other people and their engine sank and she jumped into the water and treaded water for three hours to save the entire boat and bring them to I think an island off of Greece where they were meant to go um, and then she was one of the members of the refugee Olympics team back in Rio um, and is trying to compete for Tokyo. Um, so super exciting women kind of all across the board um, both in traditional tech as well as startups, as well as VC um, and also kind of more social movements and, and human, right, human rights movements as well. 
those are some extremely cool people to have on your platform. I myself am a huge fan of Eileen Lee at Cowboy Ventures. And then Larissa, obviously, is, you know, one of those first employees at Brex. Um, I'm sure an extremely valuable source of information and advice just for uh, for young women in tech. We will link uh, to Alpha in our show notes. So switching gears here a bit from startups to venture capital. A role that you took on during your college years was the position of a partner at Rough Draft Ventures, which is, for those who don't know, a VC firm run by college students that invests in businesses created by other college students. So first off, what was your experience like with Rough Draft and what led you to the role in the first place? Yeah, definitely. So Rough Draft is probably the highlight of my college experience. I can't um, commend it enough. Um, so really, really loved it. And Basically, in terms of what I loved most about it, I think, and, and this is kind of where even my love for ventures started, I think, you know, at a high level, I had mentioned before, what I like about ventures, the ability to work hands-on with founders, um, which I couldn't do, obviously, in public markets world, um, and then still have that intellectual honesty, capital alignment, incentive alignment, long-term partnership that I didn't really see in banking. Um, but I think that was just sort of my high-level understanding, and I'm sure kind of everybody's high-level understanding of venture as well, but I think rough draft really gave me the taste of what working in venture would be like and I think what was really cool was so for a little bit more context rough draft is basically part of general catalyst we operate right out of the GC fund um, so but then we don't you know obviously engage in other GC internal operations we were kind of this standalone entity with the support of GC so we weren't standalone and being lost or being resourceless we of course had the immense and wonderful network of GC and their support um, but then we also also were able to have full agency over the companies we sourced and invested in. And so it was really cool and a really unique experience that I don't think I'll probably have again for a while until, you know, I make GP at a fund, of course, down the line. <laughs> um, and so um, I think Rough Draft is a really cool experience because you weren't just, I think, typical analysts and associates, understandably, um, but unfortunately are, you know, just kind of a cog in the wheel, sourcing, sourcing, or doing just portfolio operations, just really seeing one part of the process. So it was really cool about Rough Draft was that we owned our full sourcing process and owned our full investment evaluation process and a little bit less on the portfolio operations front just because the portfolio was so large and there was partner turnover year to year of people, of course, graduating from their respective schools, um, but still were able to really see the life cycle, at least from the investing front. And so basically what we did there was there was one partner at every school, sometimes two, but not too many. So you were really able to master your campus, if you will, versus, you know, having like 20 people on campus and stepping on each other's toes. And so I was obviously focused on Harvard College and I was a sole partner during my year. Um, so the school year of 2018 through 2019 at Harvard. Um, and we had some partners at HBS um, and then worked pretty closely with other Boston schools like MIT, um, Brown and Northeastern. Babson, um, et cetera, um, and basically source companies from different parts of campus and invested in them and supported them regardless of the investment outcome. And ultimately what I really liked about Rough Draft um, was specifically, I think, 
kind of pertinent to the Boston ecosystem. So unlike SF or New York or really any part of the country, I'd say Boston uh, startups are super research driven. There's a lot of spin outs from labs um, and PhD programs, things like that. Um, and so on the one hand, it's these really cool, really interesting, super technical founders. And I would never in a million, million years be able to you know, go in and build their product or invent their invention for them. But I felt like I was really able to help them with everything else. They had never seen a pitch deck before or knew what a term sheet was or even knew what GTM stood for or you know what a business model was. And so I was actually able to help them in these very tangible ways of providing feedback on their deck, explaining kind of the whole commercialization side to them, explaining the venture funding and raising process. And so it was really cool to be in the room with some of the smartest people in the world probably, but still actually be able to help them, whether it was just through advice or being a friend or believing in their idea in the early stage um, or, you know, providing guidance and capital along these lines. Um, and so that was a really cool experience. And lastly, in terms of um, to your early question of how I got involved with Rough Draft. So um, it is kind of a, a bit of a murky process. Um, I, I don't think there was kind of a standard application process, but basically I had met Peter Boyce, um, who's the founder of Rough Draft and now with GC for, I think, the past seven years um, since he graduated from Harvard. So I met him at different events. Um, at Harvard, and he was super active um, on the Harvard's campus when he was a student founding Harvard Ventures and Hack Harvard and um, both groups I had participated in. And so was able to meet him um, as well as Natalie, who later led up um, RGV and um, some of the prior partners. And so I was able to kind of get an interview um, and work my way into the group. Yeah, it sounds like you had and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it does sound like you had an extremely positive experience with Rough Draft. Um, and one thing that I think really does set it apart from other funds uh, is really the ability for founders to be working with their peers uh, and other folks their own age. Um, so are there different things that you saw coming up over and over that maybe founders were missing or struggling with, or things in particular that you felt like you were uniquely qualified or good at helping founders with? I guess what I'm getting at is, is there something that you can take across your experiences with Rough Draft that you can say definitively, you know what, this is what founders are missing or this is what founders are neglecting uh, that maybe folks on the other side of the table can help out with more? Yeah, totally. I think especially with the Boston ecosystem, perhaps less for, you know, consumer startups or fashion startups or things like that, but especially with um, the research of an innovation that was coming out of Boston a lot and, and definitely out of Harvard in particular, um, I think what I was really able to help founders with was kind of take their idea, and, and obviously this takes time, so it wasn't like it was, you know, done and, and achieved um, overnight, but kind of help them um, in brainstorming different ways, even if it's not something they totally execute on because um, it's obviously very hard to execute in, in very kind of research oriented spaces uh, but basically kind of create a sort of roadmap to commercialization which is what VCs always want to hear and, and you know we all know that plans um, are probably not um, are, are very theoretical and, and probably not going to stay true forever and, and there's going to be lots of edits and challenges and mishaps that come up along the way but at least for the sake of presentation and even just for um, the sake of the team itself so they have some direction 
um, and this plan could stretch out over the course of a year, two years, or three years. Um, so it's not like I saw the whole life cycle of it, but basically sitting down with them to understand kind of the um, their idea, and, and usually it was pretty moonshot or is very theoretical, so I wasn't you know trying to understand every single micro layer, but the macro idea of the impact they were trying to have, um, as well as where they were with their product or their research, um, and being able to um, you know not map out step by step the future, but be able to kind of um, help out in sort of like an 80-20 way even of targeting here are the milestones that you need to reach, um, you know, as a company and as a VC-backed company um, in order to reach your own impact goals as well. And kind of here is how we would reverse engineer the steps, that the core steps you need to take um, to reach those milestones. And then here's how you would communicate it to a potential hire or a potential partner or the FDA or um, a VC in particular. And so I think that was kind of a really specific value add um, that I was able to have and that, you know, I'm obviously still working on. There's certainly many investors who have more sort of commercialization, biotech research experience who are able to coach on this. But I think um, especially for those founders who are super, super technical and their brain is super wired to focus on the technical aspects, kind of thinking taking a step back and thinking more about practicality and reality and business um, and kind of those things that VCs want to hear and those things that ultimately are maybe best for actually building a business versus just doing research in the lab. I think bridging that gap um, was something that I was super passionate about, still am really interested in um, and, and was really cool to just not even just see like the business grow and the founders get funding and things like that, but envision the impact they're able to have, especially with you know, healthcare products and, and things that you know, can really change human lives. Absolutely. So moving us into present day here, you're currently an investor at Soma Capital. Uh, for those that don't know, Soma Capital is a seed stage fund that has invested in the likes of Lambda School, House Party, and Cruise Automation, among others. So Jess, as an investor with Soma Capital, where does your focus lie on a daily basis to find the world's next great founders and startups? Yeah, totally. So I think in terms of our own differentiated, and people always talk about, you know, proprietary deal flow. Um, so to, to provide a little bit more context, we are a Y Culminator focused fund. So we're sort of similar to a Liquid 2, Pioneer Fund, Rebel Fund, um, for those listeners who've heard of those funds funds where we basically index the top in our case 10 to 15 percent um, obviously in quotes because who can really say except in hindsight um, but it's around 20 to 30 companies per batch and of course um, as you all might know YC has two batches per year once um, with a demo day in March and the other in August um, and so we're sector um, agnostic and geography agnostic so we're ultimately just looking for really strong founders really strong teams and really strong founder um, slash team market fit um, and we understand you know, the product in the market might and probably should in many cases change tomorrow or the next day or sometime in the future, especially in the seed and pre-seed stages. Um, you know, even at YC Demo Day, lots and maybe most companies don't yet have revenue or have only a little bit of revenue and are mostly kind of in the LOI and pilot stage um, or kind of freemium, the free part of the freemium stage. And so we really don't um, feel like metrics and things like that are super predictive. And we know that founders will pivot throughout YC after YC in order to kind of find that fit for themselves. Um, and tried even different channels for getting the word out there about their product. Um, and then of course the product changes and subsequently the market changes and this whole seesaw effect kind of ensues and it's definitely not overnight. So I think we really look for 
teams that are strong that will figure it out. Um, and in terms of doing that, so outside of you know just figuring out who's in YC, we rely a lot on our portfolio companies as well um, because founders usually know founders and are able to um, you know provide a stronger re referral and recommendation um, for us and for Soma uh, more broadly than you know just us pitching ourselves in a cold email ever could. And so. You really rely on our network and specifically founders we've backed and helped in the past as well as um, investor friends. So we don't ever lead rounds um, at this stage. We always co-invest. And so we have a lot of collaborative investor relationships. We're never, you know, fighting very aggressively for allocation um, or, you know, terms or anything like that. Um, we're super founder friendly, very investor friendly as well. And so we will get a lot of deal flow from our unique investor network um, too. And in terms of kind of my day to day, so Obviously, during YC season, um, kind of the bookends of, of those, maybe a month and a half in advance of Demo Day, as well as a month after, it's pretty heads down, focus on meeting companies, um, closing deals, winning allocations, um, things like that. But really outside of Y Combinator season, so right now, um, which is right now, for example, um, although January kind of things start up again, um, we've been focused on raising our third fund, actually. So that's going to be targeted to be around $150 million. So we're really excited about that. And it's be more of a follow-on fund to double down on emerging winners in our current portfolio so it'll be very exciting to really build those long-term partnerships with our current portfolio you know even beyond just providing help or, or just being around but actually being able to do super pro rata and really provide capital behind our words and behind our conviction. Um, I think it's a really cool strategy as well because we have built this really robust portfolio with some of the names you mentioned, for example, and we also have this informational advantage when it comes to the A and the B because we invested the seed and we've been getting, you know, the quarterly, monthly reports from all these founders. We've been working with them on the ground. We've been understanding them and so we understand them better, hopefully have better relationships with them um, and also know their business and their traction and metrics and everything like that better to be able to invest with greater conviction and at more favorable terms um, in later stage deals. And so that's been a big focus. And I, I'd say the other thing I've been doing as well is catching up with current portfolio companies. And I think initially when I started at SOMA um, at first, obviously we have a pretty large portfolio as it's pretty common in the seed stage. We have a little over 200 companies. And at first I was kind of overwhelmed, frankly, with the size and was like, you know, I never would be able to build really meaningful relationships with all 200 companies. And that's probably true, at least, you know, in a limited amount of time. Um, but I think what I have been doing since then is kind of turning it around on its head. So not just seeing this as a challenge, but rather, you know, we have 200 companies. Yes, it's a lot to be calling all the time. And I probably won't be calling all of them all the time, but we do have this information on them. Um, so kind of leveraging um, the size of the portfolio as a value add for other members in the portfolio um, group of companies. So for example, we have um, this company that's building the pill pack of Latin America. They're very early. We just invested in them um, and they've been going through some typical, you know, business challenges around scale and things like that. We are one of the early backers of Alto Pharmacy, for example, which is based in the U.S. and has done really well with a pill pack like model. Um, and they're a bit later stage or quite a bit later stage. And so I was able to share some learnings from Alto with this um, Latin America company 
And so basically doing things like that, thinking of intuitive as well as less intuitive connections um, to put companies in touch with each other or just share learnings. Um, and then the last part I'd say is kind of the broader relationship development. So we're interviewing for another team member. Um, we're also kind of continuing to develop our investor relationships, um, which again is kind of where the deal flow has partly come from. Um, and then also just kind of the broader community doing different events for founders, for investors, and thinking about um, the brand um, behind the organization too. So Jess, I do want to zero in on one thing that you said. You noted that you guys are looking for really strong founders or founding teams. What are some of the traits or characteristics that you guys look for when trying to identify these types of really strong founding teams? Yeah, totally. So I actually recently wrote an article on this um, that I was really excited about writing because I, I really like to think about, you know, psychology and about people and not, not just, you know, evaluating people, that sounds pretty negative, but um, just kind of how do you look at non-intuitive things? I think a lot of times people focus a lot on the school people went to or whether they worked at Google or not. And, and those, you know, are maybe predictive or important, but I like to kind of understand people based on their core traits versus, um, you know, just kind of tags on their resume. And so I think a few things that I look for is this founder market fit. I think, you know, Brax is a great example because um, the quick backstory is that both the founders had built this fintech company um, that sold at a very high valuation before they even entered college. So literally high school students and they were both, you know, tech geniuses that had fintech in their blood. But when they went to YC, they wanted to build a VR company because VR was kind of taking off as an industry um, back then in the Valley, at least, and then at Stanford where they had been at school before they dropped out. Um, but of course, you know, they're really smart in VR. I mean, it's kind of dead now, according to kind of a lot of people. But back then, VR was really on the rise. And so you think this would be the perfect combination, but actually there wasn't founder market fit. These were fintech founders who were super smart, but they still were, you know, fintech founders. And then when they pivoted to work on Brex, obviously, you know, everything kind of clicked and they've been actually the fastest company to become a unicorn. Um, and part of that or a large part of that, I'd say, is, is this founder market fit. So, um, you know, finding that and, and seeing what really is it about this founder that's not just making them talented in isolation, but the most talented or most capable person to solve this job. And I think also, especially in the early stage, when you're looking at founders who aren't serial entrepreneurs, just obviously most founders, um, they shouldn't be ruled out, of course. Um, but I think you really want to look for people who will stick it out because sometimes you have really smart people who are also really hardworking, but it's hard to say whether they would really survive that entrepreneurial journey. So I think it's really important to look at people's backgrounds of, you know, have they done something ridiculously challenging just for fun? Have they um, even had like research experiences where their whole sample, for example, um, in, in like a lab research setting has been destroyed after like a year or two years worth of work? And did they just give up after that? Or did they keep going and put together a really good, you know, thesis or paper or presentation or whatever, um, things like that. And I think also um, people with chips on their shoulders, I think that sounds pretty cliche, but I think the way in which these people see the world is that um, it's kind of more of a call option um, than, than anything else. And so um, when they, when, you know, when you ask them what would happen if you failed, they're not very scared of it. They feel like, yes, you know, failure is sort of an inconvenience, but you know, nothing more than that. And um, the opportunity that they can get from taking a chance is so much larger than the potential for failure. And I think also 
just generally looking for really good altruistic people because ultimately there isn't a real way to rationalize becoming a founder. It's not going to lead you to immediate wealth or fame or anything like that. Maybe, you know, down the line in the future, but the odds are so slim and the timeline is so long and the interim is so hard. Um, so looking for people who really put the problem they're trying to solve before themselves and their team behind themselves and are able to change as people to meet the needs of their team, um, especially as it grows. And, um, you know, they need not just, you know, a founder team um, to lead, but a true CEO that can lead a large team. Um, and so kind of thinking about, you know, just people who are really good and really patient and really diligent and really willing to evolve and, and put others and put the team and put the idea um, and, and really be selfless um, ultimately. So not just, you know, obviously asking them like if they're selfless or not, because they're not going to, you know, say and that's very weird, but um, kind of even talking about having them talk about instances where they performed or behaved in a certain way. And I think so many times people as investors focus a lot on like, oh, in the seed stage, like, oh, is this metric 60 or is it 61.5? Um, and sometimes that's important, but usually it's not because data in the seed stage is really not predictive um, of the future for some of the reasons mentioned with all the pivots and everything and, and lack of data. Um, and so I think what I like to focus more on is just how founders see the world. So seeing how they think um, and you know being able to extract extrapolate that to core traits and behavioral features um, that would be actually more fundamental because, you know, the 6160 number is probably going to change tomorrow. Uh, it might, might not even be relevant by the next hour, but these core traits of founders are probably something they've had since their childhood or since birth and they're, you know, truly their instincts and maybe they'll change as people over time, but they really kind of evolve um, around their, those instincts, kind of pivot um, around those instincts with those instincts being kind of the their grounding characteristics. And I think I try to get at those. Um, obviously, it's hard to tell, but try to get at those through getting to know the founders um, and their life story and how they see the world and asking questions that are more along those lines um, than, you know, kind of what is this metric or what's the growth or things like that. So zooming out from more of a qualitative focus at the seed stage of venture investing, uh, moving towards more of a quantitative focus in the world of finance. Um, you also spent some time working for Morgan Stanley as an investment banking analyst in their San Francisco office. What was that experience like and what ultimately led you to decide not to return to the firm? Obviously, this is uh, a very prestigious job. It's one that's pursued by so many different college students at top schools. Can you walk me through your decision not to return after getting a return offer during your summer there? Yeah, totally. I think kind of the way in which I saw banking is that it actually truly is a really good career for maybe the majority of the world. I think it's really helpful for four things in particular. The first is if you, um, and banking as in, you know, a bank at a prestigious bank like Morgan Stanley. Um, the first is if you're looking for a brand name on your resume, uh, maybe you didn't go to the college of your dreams um, and you're kind of lacking in that department, but still want to prove your worth um, on your resume. So that's really good. But of course I had gone to Harvard, so didn't feel like I needed to collect another brand name in the near-term future. And the second is for people who maybe studied liberal arts or true humanities in school um, and, and haven't done you know, much in the way of quantitative analysis and want to brush up or learn those skills, um, that's super valuable. But I had studied applied math and had come from a quantitative background from an early age, so didn't really need that. And I'd say the third is if people feel like they're um, lacking in work ethic or just want to work on work ethic more, I think it's kind of a boot camp that really puts people in shape 
shape. Um, but I had always had, you know, maybe even too much anxiety about work and about organization. Um, and so didn't really feel like I needed that. And the last is that people are super dead set on going into private equity. Um, and I personally know private equity is a great industry, but personally never felt that kind of need to be in the industry um, at all costs. And so felt like kind of all those boxes definitely applied to many, many people, maybe the majority of the world, but didn't really apply to me. And so felt like banking wasn't a really good fit um, for me. And I think kind of, um, as you were talking a little bit about earlier before recording, I feel like so many times people theoretically go to, you know, schools like Harvard to be able to de-risk themselves. Um, you know, even if things go bad, badly in the future, you're still able to say, you know, I did go to Harvard on a certain level of IQ, maybe EQ, competence, work ethic, things like that. Um, and, you know, obviously you can leverage a network and, and whatever. Um, but I think what ends up happening is that um, people in actuality in this, you know, obviously it is pretty intuitive um, and probably what most of us would do, but they end up becoming addicted to de-risking themselves and collecting titles and it's totally fine to you know work in private equity or banking if you really love the job and you really love the firm um, and just like have this close connection to it and, and many people do which is awesome but I think you know more people than not end up going into these industries for the wrong reason and, and namely for collecting those titles and, and they feel like they need to climb this ladder to somewhere you know I go to Harvard then I go to banking then I go to business school then I go to private equity um, and then I you know make partner um, but kind of what is this all for um, and so I just felt like it was a ladder to nowhere and this kind of endless de-risking loop and I wasn't really taking this job and there's so many you know good reasons to take this job but I felt like like the reasons I was doing it for weren't really the right reasons. And so um, I felt like I needed to kind of take me down a full, full leap, like and as in, you know, become a founder or, you know, go and like um, go to the middle of nowhere and like do something super random. But I felt like I need to take this first leap of joining a smaller firm and a more up and coming firm in an industry that's still, you know, prestigious, VC is great, but, um, you know, a little bit kind of off the, the main course, um, if you will, especially relative to my classmates um, and, and, you know, the broader school and the herd mentality that exists there. And so um, that was kind of my experience, but I really loved my summer there. The team was super smart and I think, you know, I, I already had pretty good work ethic going into it, but I think my work ethic got even better afterwards, even just over the course of a summer. And we were able to, Morgan Stanley is pretty active in their tech practice. So we were able to do three IPOs just during my nine weeks over the summer. And I was able to be a part of all three of those. Um, and they were all pretty different companies. Um, one was Domo Software, and um, one was Bloom Energy, which is energy tech and one was Sonos, which is more consumer hardware, consumer electronics. Um, so really interesting exposure, really great, hardworking, innovative team, really supportive analyst class. Um, and, you know, the work itself, you know, obviously it's not the most glamorous, but did feel like I learned a lot, especially in the way of, of how I operate and, and work in teams. So entering our final portion of the show, we're going to dive into a couple shorter questions, some fun facts, if you will. Are you ready to get started, Jess? Yes, perfect. So if you could go back in time, what advice would you give yourself before you entered college? Would you change anything about your path thus far? Yeah, I think kind of going into Harvard, um, I had this 
I, I made my identity around my strengths um, and my strengths were, everybody defines their strengths on a pretty relative basis. Like I'm good at math because I won this math competition or because I was ranked first in math in my class and coming from high school and, and I went to a pretty small high school, but really any high school doesn't compare to Harvard um, or, or really any large university of that caliber. And so um, I had this kind of existential crisis, if you will, going into school because, you know, I started not being at the top of my class, which is very natural, but it was kind of a core part of my identity. And I started to lose my identity because I was like, you know, who am I without these strengths? And so I think what I would recommend my former self and, and people in, in this particular situation um, is to really define yourself by your interests because those um, don't really, I mean, they can change, but they can only change in a pretty constructive way. And they're going to still be there for you and still provide joy and still provide fulfillment for you regardless of the outcome. So really focusing on um, those interests and the process of learning um, and, and developing versus the outcome because the outcome can be influenced by so many variables that are out of your control. I think that's awesome advice and I really do think it's an important thing for people to remember or just kind of keep uh, at the front of mind from time to time. Yeah, but what books or podcasts have had the greatest impact on your life thus far and why? Yeah, so I'd say the actually my favorite podcast is this one by Patrick O'Shaughnessy, um, who runs. He's at, it's very interesting. He actually is a quant investor in the public markets, but um, he runs this like amazing podcast called Invest Like the Best. Um, and it sounds like kind of cliche and corny, but he asks the truly smartest questions of some of the smartest people ever, and he um, has this really great way of even like synthesizing what they're saying um, and, and kind of providing like the macro view of things, which is, you know, kind of more important for most people when they're listening to um, these things. And he features all kinds of people, not just in um, public markets, but actually largely in venture and startups um, in larger corporations, founders, um, things like that. He's had people like the founders of Instagram and the founders of Spotify. Um, he's had Bill Gurley and Kiefer Boy. Um, so all these really, really incredible people um, on the platform. And it's just been really great to to learn from that and it's been been you know one of the most um educational experiences that i've had that podcast is awesome patrick is such a great interviewer um, yeah. obviously any opportunity to learn from the likes of bill Gurley and keith Rabaugh, uh something that's really really cool and just so valuable so yeah, definitely. so let's fast forward to six years from now what do you hope to have accomplished in your lifetime and what do you hope to be remembered for yeah, definitely. That's a really good question. And I think what I would like to be remembered for is ultimately building, taking something from point A to point B. I think a lot of times people, um, you know, are like, oh, I joined this company and they were at point B and they were, you know, really rocket ship shipping off to point C. Um, and I was a part of that. And that was really exciting to see. And that's all great. But I think I really kind of want to um, be in a place where, you know, we're at point A and nobody really believes or very few people really believe in the vision or what we're doing or even understand it. Um, but then kind of having that conviction myself, and I don't know, you know, yet what this will be, but having my that conviction and, and not, you know, crazy conviction, but really evidence-driven, data-driven, but still contrarian conviction in a particular idea or, you know, a way in which I see the world evolving. Um, and not just, you know, having this belief and having these ideas, um, but, you know, really 
really working in the trenches with other people who share that vision, but come with different backgrounds and different viewpoints um, to kind of make this idea better and really refine it and stick it out through those tough times and take things, take this thing, whatever it is, from point A to point B. And so um, really want to be involved in, in building something really unique um, from the early days um, and really kind of taking it from, from zero to one, if you will. Yeah, and I do think there is just a ton of meaning in taking something from scratch or something from just the idea phase uh, and bring it, really bringing that into the world uh, and growing that product and scaling the company. Um, and obviously, that's such a tough journey. So founders yeah. do need folks like yourself uh, that can help out not just with funding, but for support and so many different things along the way. But that's a very cool goal. Thank you. So last but not least, where is the best place for our listeners to find you, Jess? Yes, definitely. So a few places. The best is probably on Medium. So I write a lot there um, and you can feel free to follow me there or contact me there. Um, my username there is Jessly, J-E-S-S-L-I. Um, and then you can also um, find me on LinkedIn and feel free to message me there. I also list out um, my various email addresses depending on you know whether you're trying to contact me for Alpha or for Soma or for Harvard and Tech or for something else. Um, so you can feel free to reach out to me there as well. Jess, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. This has been Ashley Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.card.co. That's card with two R's, W-O-R-T-H dot C-A-R-R-D dot C-O. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends or leave a review. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.